Hello, uh, my name is John, I live in Luton um, and I am going to do some teaching now on the theme of work, which is the next theme in the series that you have been doing. Um, yeah, before I do that though, uh, before I jump straight in, I just wanted to say a few things uh, about myself. I, as I said, I live in Luton. I moved here in 2006 to help start a church, a few friends from university. I then got married in 2007 to my wife, Roxana. Um, we have two kids, Meredith, she is six, and Benedict, who is four. Still very much involved in the community that we started. I chair our leadership team. And also I work, I work as an entrepreneur and a consultant, and I have done for a number of years. I'm just really pleased to be able to talk to you. <laughs> Got some listening ears to uh, what I might be able to share, maybe some of the things that I've learnt, that we have learnt here in Luton over this time. So thank you very much for the opportunity and I hope you enjoy it, that you get something um, from it as we proceed. Um, I wonder if I should just pray to start. I'll close my eyes to do so. God, thank you that you are with us and even though... Um, we are distanced because of the circumstances that we live in, the way the world is at the moment, that in you we're brought together, that we're part of a bigger story and a bigger picture. And I pray this morning that your spirit would be with us, that your spirit would be in me, working through me, that the words that I speak are ones that are helpful, that instruct. Pray that I bring revelation and for the the hearers of this video i pray that um whatever is not helpful would fall away and instead there would be the opportunity for your spirit to be at work in the conversation as it unfolds your name jesus amen right um in terms of structuring things uh i was going to start off at the very beginning um, uh, the beginning of the Bible anyway, and talk about creation, what God is doing in creation and how that relates to work, work and rest. Then I want to talk about the fall, the fall of humankind, the introduction of sin into the world, uh, the way that that breaks, um, what God had originally intended and what it does to the nature of work. I then wanted to, um, staying in Genesis actually, have a look at the story of the Tower of Babel and accepting the wider lens that we apply when we often think about and read that story about pride um, and about hubris and the human condition also maybe to bring into conversation with that a little bit of understanding about the context in which that story might have been written down when was genesis written and what was going on and what that might be able to tell us the kind of economic and social context that it was written down in what might that be able to tell us about the nature of work in a fallen world after that i wanted to talk about Jesus, about Jesus and the kingdom and to listen to some of the words of Jesus from the New Testament and to see what his announcement of the kingdom and his ushering in of a new age through his life and his death and his resurrection, what that does to work for us. 
And then finally, I wanted to talk about work in the now and the not yet. What does it mean to work uh, while we live in this in-between time between the victory that Jesus won on the cross, the new life that he offers in his resurrection, and yet that we still wait for the fulfilment of his promise to return and the fulfilment of his command to us to um, go out into all the world and teach as we have been taught. So, you'll have to forgive me, I'm going <laughs> to be reading down here and therefore will at times not be talking directly to you but will be looking at my phone. But where I wanted to start, um, yeah, was in Genesis. I'm going to read quite a bit of it and um, I hope that's okay. I would just maybe encourage you to let the words wash over you. I think it's probably quite familiar to many of us, uh, even those of us who perhaps haven't been in church very much. This story is uh, one that is throughout, throughout our culture, but actually to listen to the words, listen maybe for what the Spirit is drawing you to um, as you hear these words, those words that might shine, phrases that are jumping out. Um, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, and that, that was the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome, and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome, and it was so. And God called the dome sky. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let be and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth and it was so god made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day the lesser light to rule the night and the stars and god set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth to rule over the day over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind. 
with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day and God said let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind and it was so God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind and God saw that it was good. Then God said let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over everything that moves upon the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with the seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given you every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw that everything he would had, uh, God saw that everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. From all the work that he had done, he rested. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. just want to draw our attention to a few things uh, from this passage I just read. The first one is really obvious, and it's sort of the reason maybe I read so much of it, which is that God works, that in doing the act of creation, in creating the world, that that was work and that is how the writer or the writers of Genesis saw it, that God was working. Second, that God makes humankind in his image male and female he creates them they are in his image and what does that mean what is it that we know so far about God we know that he is a worker that is what we're told up to this point that his image is that one of creating of changing bringing order bringing difference and we are made in his image humankind is made in his image to work we're made to work the third thing i want to draw our attention to is that god in making humans in his image then sets them over the earth to have dominion over it to have dominion over all things all the things that move the things in the air the things in the sea the things on the earth over all of the plants that the humans are put in charge as his image image bearers 
and that they are charged with the stewardship of the earth and that within that concept of stewardship there is an idea of looking after the earth and also an idea of bringing forth fruitfulness from it. God charges the people that he has made with having dominion, with stewarding and bringing forth fruitfulness from the earth through their work, through their labour. Fourth thing, um, I think it's really important because I think these two things throughout scripture and I think in the conception and this is why they're in the very beginning of the Bible and why they're in Genesis here is the symbiosis uh, between work and rest. God is a worker and God is a rester and that those two things are holy and that you cannot have work without rest. You cannot have right work without rest, godly work without rest. And you cannot have rest without work, that God does both. And the most holy day, just the one of the seven, was the day of rest. But it gets its meaning in the context of the other six, the days of work. There is um, a word, a Hebrew word, and a concept that I just um, I think might be really helpful for drawing some of this stuff together, and it is it's a word you would probably be familiar with, the word shalom, which means peace. But it is more than our sort of Western concept of peace, which really means what the absence um, of conflict says a lot. I think. <laughs> about the state of the the world as we um have made it that this this the peace that maybe we think of is as opposed to war or as opposed to violence maybe not maybe there is more to it than that and i'm being a little harsh but certainly this hebrew concept of peace of shalom is a lot more holistic that it's not um the search, certainly the first century Palestinian Jewish way of thinking um, uh, that we that is fairly well documented, obviously, as a result of the Bible, of um, works around uh, the, the New Testament, that is, of works around explaining the New Testament. It's fairly well documented. But the worldview um, of first century Palestinian Jews was a much more holistic, that they didn't break things down into spheres of the sacred and the secular, the political the economic and sort of personal and private the different that there wasn't a difference between necessarily the physical and the spiritual that there was a that the, there was a the thing was whole that was holistic um, and correspondingly their conception of peace of shalom included ideas of that we find here in Genesis of rightness with the earth, living at peace with the earth, of prosperity, um, of fruitfulness, that within this idea of peace was a being at one on the land, one with God, that from the land there is this fruitfulness that sustains us. We eat uh, and we also look after the earth, that within, that God's peace and prosperity, shalom, Simple, really. The idea that God is a worker and a rester. 
that we've been made in his image to have dominion over the earth, to steward it in peace and prosperity and to bring forth fruitfulness from it. Simple. But I would guess for most of us, if we maybe peel back some of the layers of the things that we're taught to think and say around, you know, that work is good and worthy and all of that, that actually... And sure, I would imagine there's there's some cons- consolation, feelings of consolation in in the in our experience and in our concept of work. But if we peel some of that away, that there is also some desolation. If we talk about say Monday morning, Monday morning blues, ideas of working very hard, and so on. That it is not just this picture that we find in this first chapter of Genesis of the stewardship and the fruitfulness and actually the shalom peace and prosperity that god gives to these uh people in the story if we think so that's kind of in our own experience right i think i'm sure as, as much as you might love your work that there is a part of it where there is desolation for you but if we look more generally at the earth we are very privileged um the society that we live in most of us anyway are very privileged um that our lives are relatively straightforward uh with regards to many things that we uh, most of us have enough to eat and that our work is not exploitative um, although certainly in our society there is much exploitation but if we look across the world at that there are many millions of people potentially in the billions of people for whom work is not peace um that actually it is the very opposite of peace that is difficult that it's exploitative that it comes with great pain potentially is against people's will um and certainly will be an experience that shortens people's lives and um and takes away much of the joy that as we read genesis is promised here so what went wrong? <laughs> Come on now to the fall. The fall of humankind and the entry of sin into the world. What is it that went wrong? It is the same thing that went, went wrong with everything. It's our own selfishness as, a, as, a, as humankind. Our own jealousy, greed, hate, violence that upset the order of things um and i think just to sort of elucidate that a little bit i'm going to go back now to genesis again i'm not going to read as much this is so this is so i've read the first chapter and, the, and a bit of the second chapter of genesis already um it's a story again that will be familiar to us so what happens it's a different creation narrative i think i think I think in Genesis there are a number of uh, creation narratives that, that that have been put together, not necessarily to to tell us about the early history somehow of the earth, but instead are stories about what God is like, what humans are like, what his intention for us and for the earth was, and also how we uh, managed to cock it up so badly. And so um, there's this second uh, creation narrative which is the one where where Adam and Eve appear. 
Um, and you will know it well. So God, first of all, creates a man, Adam. Adam is very lonely, can't really find a companion from amongst the animals. And so God takes from Adam bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, uh, and creates woman. And that they are together and they live in the garden and it's all lovely. But God says to them, there's this tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil. And you can eat of any tree in the garden, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, um, let's find it here. It's actually chapter. We move into chapter three for the uh, for the for the serpent to us to appear. Of course, the serpent the serpent appears and sort of corners the woman and says. Did God really say that you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Do you think that might be because he knows that it will make you more powerful, that you become... Anyway, all of this stuff, you know the story well. Um, because you, yeah. And will it will it really cause you to die? Is God really, you know, is God really telling the truth that... First of all, Eve, having not heard the message directly from God, eats of the tree. She gives it to Adam, who also <laughs> eats of the tree, and they obviously both blame it on the on the serpent, which always strikes me very as very convenient. God's, you know, why did you do what the snake told me to do it? Anyway, let's just sort of join that story half part way through. They heard, so this is after they have eaten of the tree and they've, uh, they're going to hide from God. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent tricked me and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this thing, cursed are you among all animals, among all the wild creatures, um, you shall Go upon your belly and the dust shall eat at you, at you all the days of your life. I'll, be, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. To the man he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to. You shall not eat of it, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So I'll just say that again. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Wow.
to what happens when sin enters the world. Relationships are broken. First and most importantly, the relationship between God and humans breaks down. And I say most importantly because that is the relationship which defines humankind's identity. That we are made to be, we are made in the image of God to be, to carry his image, to be like him. And so as that relationship breaks down because of the sin that we brought into the world, our identity becomes unmoored. And in some senses, it becomes possible for us to stop treating one another as human, both that is undehumanizing for me because I have lost my meaning of what it is to be a human. I become less than I can become less than human. And that means I can tr treat you as less than human, that I can start to instrumentalize my relationship with you and with other people. And so that's the second thing. The second thing that breaks down is the relationship between the people. So obviously in the story, we see the breakdown between the, rela the relationship between the man and the woman. And we see here the writer of Genesis noting that a kind of patriarchal society, which is all, I'm certain, all that the writers of Genesis would have known. But there is some kind of oppression in a patriarchal society where men are seen as better, more important, stronger than the rest of it, and that there is an exploitation of women, uh, that is violence against women. And it's right here in Genesis that that is, a, is as a result of sin, that that is a sinful thing. But also, more broadly than just between the man and the woman, that there is a, a breakdown of relationships between people. I don't know if you've heard the phrase man's inhumanity to man, that our ability to behave towards one another in, in ways that are violent, uh, hurtful, that bring death, destruction, that this is a result of us bringing sin into the world through our selfishness. And then finally, and it's laid out <laughs> quite a bit there um, in the narrative, is the breakdown between humankind and the earth. That whereas before that shalom peace the shalom, peace and prosperity of the Lord that we've been given dominion over the earth to steward it, to bring forth fruitfulness and that there would be joy and rest in that process. Actually, that has fundamentally altered and instead, because of sin, that it is through toil um, that we shall <laughs> earn our keep from the land that their thistles and thorns shall grow and that it be by the sweat of uh, our brow as humans that uh, work is done and it's essentially the relationship between work and um, rest is somehow altered that there is that there's actually pain in work and rest is a respite from it rather than there being this beautiful symbiosis that we see in that very first chapter of Genesis where God creates and then he rests and he that is a it's a holy pairing so fruitfulness becomes toil right I want us to turn then to the story of the Tower of Babel um, 
I'll read the the story in a moment. But just before I did, I just wanted to talk a little bit about worship. Actually, it might seem strange to bring it in here, but it is tied up um, in the ideas of image bearing, of reflecting back to God, his glory and his character, and us being active in that um, the primordial idyll of Eden and the way that the world was meant to be, that we are made with the capacity to worship, which actually... Is exactly that is the it, it is the image bearing it is the reflection back to God of who He is and in that process that we as humans are defined that we are it's where our worth is made clear that because we are like God that we're creative like God that we work like God um, that we shine with the light that uh, God radiates and that, that as that as that light shines back to God that that is worship. Forgive me for my sort of <laughs> being too conceptual, uh, but that that we have fundamentally as humans a capacity for worship, and I think actually a need for worship that there that we worship. That's one of the things that we do as humans, and that what happens in the process of the fall, as there is a breakdown um, in the relationship between us as us and God, and that path of worship um, decays that the object of our worship we still need to worship and therefore the object of that worship shifts and is kind of inverted and is uh corrupted as from what it was intend, intended for originally which is a kind of worshipful god loves us and we worship him in return and that there is this mutual uh the shining light and it then bouncing back to god and that instead we begin first of all primarily um to worship ourselves, it's the pride um, that we yeah, we begin to worship ourselves, and also we begin to worship things in creation. These this place that where we were given dominion and stewardship, that actually we set some of the those things up, and then I won't go into it now. It's probably not the right time. To, the idea of the elemental spirits and the principalities of and powers that potentially in, and that God has appointed to rule over the earth that that these things become objects of worship so we worship the, the ourselves we worship the things that we create we worship things in nature and we worship these principalities and powers right let me read um the story of the tower of babel <laughs> let me find it here we go it's in Genesis chapter 11, um, and just starting at verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the mortals had built. The Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. Confuse their language there, 
so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building a city and therefore it was called Babel because their Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Okay, so I, why why does God um, scatter them? Why does he disrupt their language and why does he, he end the building of the tower? Now I... Um, I think it's right. One of the things that we might say is this is about pride, about hubris and about man's worship of himself. I think um, maybe if we just learn uh, a little bit, perhaps about the historical context that this story that the, was written down in, the composition of what was happening during the composition um, of the Genesis narratives, um, might give us fresh eyes and I think it will uh, shed light on this idea of what what is work like in a fallen world. So, Genesis was written down um, around the 7th century BC, uh, so the, the 600s. Um, it was after uh, the Jewish people had been exiled from the land after they'd been taken captive by the Babylonians and been taken to Babylon. Um, Babylon had a highly organised economy, actually a very sophisticated economy from what we know of it. Uh, the, so the sophistication of which was, was probably not known in Europe well potentially during the time of the Roman occupation of, uh, of much of the rest of Europe beyond Italy, but certainly uh, during what we call the Middle Ages, between the, during the medieval times, that the Babylonian economic system was much more sophisticated than that. So things like complex debt instruments, um, the keeping of accounts and so forth, that it... The, in Europe, it was not until the late Renaissance into the early modern age that we developed anything like the kind of financial and organisational sophistication that they knew um, in the Babylonian Empire and actually throughout most of the, the Near East and, for instance, the Syrian Empire, uh, the Assyrian Empire, and so on. And it was actually the temples of Marduk. Uh, Marduk is, is the Babylonian uh, kind of cult god. He was just a city-state god during the time that Babylon itself, a city, was um, was rising. But obviously, as their empire grew, he became to be the chief god of the pantheon of the Babylonians. And it was the the temples to Marduk, which were the kind of the centre, the organising points of this complex economy and the priests of Marduk that were the organisers, the managers, the accountants and the taxmen of the this very hierarchical state uh, and one in which there were all kinds of workers from slaves that had been taken in war or people that had slipped into slavery because of exploitative lending practices through to indentured workers uh, and so on up through different echelons of the hierarchy to the priests of Marduk and then also the royal family or families um, at the top of that. Around this time, uh, well it had stood there for 
number of hundred years and was to stand there for a uh, hundred years more, there was a tower called the Etamananki. Um, it was almost a hundred metres tall and uh, it, was, it was a square tower and the sides of its base were a hundred metres. So if you imagine um, in ancient times, this was a colossal thing, this great tower in the very centre of Babylon and it was actually itself dedicated, it was a temple dedicated to Marduk, to that god, the god of Babylon, the god of, he was a god of the harvest, he was a god of justice but also probably a god of commerce and of control of society. Um, so in the very centre of Babylon there was a great tower, just clues throughout uh, the text around that, that part of Genesis that point to the fact that the tower that they're talking about in this story is indeed the tower in the centre of Babylon dedicated to Marduk. Now I want to read you um, an inscription from that tower. There's, there's an inscription um, found in 1880 uh, that would have been made around the time uh, that the, the Jewish people were in, um, in Babylon. So so it's on some of the what on the foundation cylinders that had um, inscriptions on, uh, and it's essentially from the from some building work that was done on the tower. At that time, my Lord Marduk told me to regard the Etamananki, the ziggurat of Babylon, which before my days was already very weak and badly buckled. I was to ground its bottom on the breast of the on the breast of the netherworld, to make its top vie with the heavens. I fashioned mattocks, spades and brick moulds from ivory, ebony and musukanu wood and set them in the hands of a vast workforce levied from my land. I had them shape mud bricks without number and mould and bake the bricks like countless raindrops. I had the river Aratu bear asphalt and bitumen like a mighty flood through the sagacity of I, through the intelligence of Marduk, through the wisdom of Nabu and Nisaba, by means of the vast mind that the God who created me let me possess. I deliberated with my great intellect. I commissioned the wisest experts and the surveyors established the dimensions with the 12 cubit rule. The master builders drew taut the measuring cords. They determined the limits. I sought confirmation by consulting Samas, Adad and Marduk. And whenever my mind deliberated and I pondered, unsure of the dimensions the great gods made, the truth known to me by the procedure of oracular confirmation. Through the craft of exorcism, the wisdom of Aya and Marduk, I purified that place and made firm its foundations, platforms on its ancient, ancient base. In its foundations I laid out gold and silver, gemstones from the mountains and the sea. From under the brickwork I set heaps of shining sapsu, sweet scented oils, aromatics and red earth. I fashioned representations of my own likeness, my royal likeness, bearing a soil basket, and I positioned them variously in the foundation platform. I bowed my neck to my Lord Marduk. I rolled up my garment, my kingly robe, and I carried it on my head bricks and earth. I had soil baskets made of gold and silver, and I made Nebuchadnezzar, my firstborn son, beloved of my heart, carry along my workmen, carry alongside my workmen, earth mixed with wine, oil, and resin. I made Nabusimila, his brother, a boy, issue of my own body, 
my darling younger son take up mattock and spade. I burdened him with a soil basket of gold and silver, and I bestowed on my lord Marduk as a gift. I constructed the building, the replica of Isarar, in joy and jubilation, and raised its top as high as a mountain. For my lord Marduk, I made it an object, fitting for wonder, just as it was in former times. So, we know that the economy of the Babylonians was vast, well-organised, based on lending and borrowing, the collecting of interest, that it was organised from the Temple of Marduk and within the centre of Babylon itself, the city, stood um, a vast tower. And so if we listen again to the story of the Tower of Babel, knowing some of these things, just listening to the echoes of that language uh, that was carved on the side of the tower, perhaps we can hear maybe the things that were ringing in the ears of the people who wrote down that story. Perhaps some of them had been involved in the backbreaking work to build that tower to the glory of a man, to the glory of his idol Marduk, Certainly many of them will have been sent out to the fields to work under the scorching sun. Hard work to fill the granaries of the temples of Marduk and the tables um, of the royal banqueting halls. And perhaps many of them will have slipped through the... Um, exploitative lending practices that are well documented in the clay tablets that we're able to read into slavery through indentured labour um, ultimately to being slaves whose work was grinding whose lives could be traded who could be killed at will because of the economic system the story of the Tower of Babel was written down in the shadow of a monument to a, to work, it was a, a monument to work in a fallen world order. Work that was hard, was often forced, and the fruits from which were not enjoyed by those people who did the work. The, instead being enjoyed by the violent and the powerful. And looking at it through the, that lens, we see, I think, what work becomes in a fallen world, exploitative, painful, toilsome, unjust. That would be a bad place to leave it, but I'm now going to co come on to talk about the kingdom and Jesus. So let me read, if I can find it, from Luke, Luke chapter 4, Luke's Gospel. Chapter 4, 16 to 21. Let's just set these words against the exploitative life of those indentured in labour in Babylon who would have written down that story, the Tower of Babel. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your healing, in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. In the midst of exploitation, of broken work that is painful and difficult, that is forced, the fruit of which is often stolen, God comes to proclaim his favour. And caught up in that phrase, the year of the Lord's favour, there are ideas that hark back to the concept of shalom, of peace and prosperity and of fruitfulness. God came to himself to sort out the violence and the injustice. And he came not as a mighty ruler. He came not with a conquering army, but he came as a little baby first born to a peasant girl barely literate I would imagine to a region that was forgotten was laughed at that was under occupation by a foreign army that would have been extracting from it the fruits of the labour of the people that lived there and his victory came in surrendering to an unjust death caught in the gears of politics and economics of that exploitative empire. But he rose again on the third day and in doing that ushered in a new kingdom that he had spent much of his life teaching his followers about. I thought perhaps... Um, I could read a bit more of Luke, uh, his version of the Sermon on the Mount, um, which we find in chapter 6. Starts um, at verse 20. Then he looked up at his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. And blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, when they revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in the heavenly places, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. And woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what the ancestors did to the false prophets. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. 
If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask them again. Do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Um, I want to make uh, a few observations uh, about the kingdom. Just talk a little bit about what is happening as the kingdom is ushered in. What is Jesus doing through his life, his death and his resurrection in ushering the kingdom in? The first is a disruption. It is a disruption of the system of oppression, of violence that has been created through the fall of humankind and through the institution of man's greed, his worship of himself, the, wor the humanity's worship of the things of the earth and the principalities and powers and so on. It is a disruption of that system. And some people talk about an upside down kingdom where things are turned on their heads, where those who are poor are comforted, where they're and those who are rich are warned, where those who are full are said, woe to you. And actually those who are hungry know that one day that they will be satisfied because the kingdom is coming. So that there is an upending of the system, that the Tower of Babel is taken and turned on its head. This exploitative economic system that hurts people and forces them to do work, the fruits of which are removed from their hands, that that system will be broken because it will be turned on its head and the tower will collapse. I think there's a second thing as well, though. It's not just the disruption, but it is also the restoration. A restoration of creation as it was intended to be. A restoration of peace and prosperity, shalom. A restoration of the fruitfulness of work, that through work humans will be satisfied that they will eat, that they will be given rest, that rest and work will go side by side in a system of peace and that God will re-establish his relationship with us, that walk with us in the cool of the day. So Jesus is talking about the end of the broken system, the unjust system, the system that takes and twists work as it was meant to be and makes it painful and difficult as God prophesies in that myth in that myth story at the beginning of Genesis and instead replaces it with the promises of, in Genesis of fruitfulness of dominion and of stewardship so Jesus through his life his death his resurrection and actually through his ascension ushers in the kingdom but that is not the end of the story. Indeed, it's actually a beginning. It's the beginning of our story. Let me read um, from Matthew 28. Uh, just, just right at the end um, of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 28, starting at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, 
to the very end of the age. Jesus's return to heaven, his ascension, is the start of our story. And that, that the Great Commission, um, as it is recorded in Matthew, is his instruction to us, to, essentially to go out and to make whole, to make real, to make complete the ushering in of his kingdom, the advance of his gospel. And so that is the time that we live in, the time where the kingdom has begun to come, but has not finished coming. And actually, it is a time when that thing which is opposed to the kingdom, the system of violence and injustice, continues. How then do we think about work in this time, in this in-between time, when on the one hand, the systems of oppression and pain, that work is toil and hard, um, are still in existence and in fact they still dominate much of the world. We only need luck around us to see the way violence and hate plays out. But at the same time, Jesus has done what is necessary. He has done it and he has heralded the beginning of the age of the kingdom, the outbreak of the kingdom. And not only that, actually those of us who follow Jesus and those of us who's in whom his spirit lives, are the agents of the kingdom, that we carry the light, we carry the likeness of Jesus, we carry the spirit of Jesus, and it is our job to bring that kingdom, to herald the kingdom in all of the places that we go. What is our job? The first thing I want to do, actually, is just to dismantle a hierarchy maybe that it is easy to build up um, in our kind of church culture where perhaps the evan- that evangelistic work is at the top and then you know maybe we move down through uh, ministries and maybe then into charity work perhaps then onto you know like manual labor is obviously more honest than other kinds of work. I mean, Jesus himself was a carpenter, Paul made tents. And then, you know, kind of through office functions and things like that, you know, obviously with accountants and taxmen at the bottom. (laughs) The kingdom is breaking out in all of those places and the kingdom of God knows no boundaries. And actually, our instruction is to take the message of Jesus, his gospel, and also his teaching about the kingdom to the very ends of the earth. And so in all of those contexts, we are invited to bring his kingdom through our work. So how do we do that? I think that potentially a lot of the time it is a fool's errand to try and untangle the very complex web of like, the sinful things of this world. The way that the tendrils of injustice and um, oppression get into the the kind of work that we're doing. Yes, there is a time for that, but we need to be led there by Jesus. But instead of that, there is a very simple thing that we need to do in the work that we have now and maybe the work that we're called to. It's a simple, it's a a prayer and it's asking two things. 
First of all, Jesus, where are you? Where are you in this work that I am doing? And secondly, what would you have me do? Now, <laughs> obviously, no, I'm, what I'm not saying is we don't need to think about, first of all, all of the good of work and be discerning within our work context what God might be doing with regards to that stuff. Where is there satisfaction? Where is there fruitfulness? Where do I feel called into what I'm doing? And then also what work is like in the broken system where it is oppressive, where often the work that we do means that others suffer. We can look up and down global supply chains and we can see slavery. We can see environmental degradation. and We can see that the companies that we work for or the places that we gain our income from are actually part of the broken system, the exploitative system, the kind of work that oppresses people. It's important to be aware of these things and it's obviously why I've taken so long now to just talk them through. But actually, in terms of our response, the most important thing, those two questions, Jesus, where are you? And what would you have me do? I want to end by talking about two related experiences that we might find in our lives because in the in our, the time that we live in the idea of work is bound up with the idea of employment and so there is an idea of unemployment that is we and don't have some kind of contractual relationship where we do work and we get money for it. Um, and there also is the work that we might do in the home. Work does not equal employment. Employment is about the financial monetary system that we have right now and actually um, its hallmarks are the hallmarks of a broken relationship to work of the sinful um, system of work where our worth is tied to the amount of money that we can earn or to how unusual our skills are or to what we might achieve. So I just want to really clearly speak to this, that that stuff isn't a lie, that it's part, it is part of the um, outworking of the fall of humankind and the way that it has damaged work. Work does not equal employment. Work is about being in the image of God, about doing his work on the earth, being creative or whatever that creativity looks like. It might be artistic creativity, but it's just as equally uh, might be um, bringing order, helping people, being there for people. That work does not equal employment. And actually God 
calls us often outside of the structures of the economic system that we're faced with. And the other, as I said, is um, work in the home. That similarly with our system is not valued in the same way and is often looked down upon. I just want to say again that that is God's work, that the work of the home is the work of the kingdom, the work of hospitality, the work of kindness to one another, the work of feeding one another. The work of making a home is the work of the kingdom. <laughs> we come to the end then and I uh, maybe just try and sum up um, in a few sentences. I have um, talked today about God and that God is a worker and that God made work and rest to coexist together, to be symbiotic, that there is no work without rest and there's no rest without work. And that God made us in his image to be as he is to work and to have dominion over the earth, to steward the earth and to make it fruitful and that that, that work is good. But through our own selfishness, uh, through our sinfulness, we brought death, greed, jealousy and pain into the world and that that has fundamentally broken the relationship first of all between us and God between one another each to the other and also between us and the earth and that that has profound effects on our experience of work that work becomes toilsome and difficult and that actually the economic systems that we build as humans as a result are exploitative and that they're painful and that they dehumanise others and that they are often marked really by the theft of fruitfulness, that, fruitful, that fruitfulness that God originally gave to us. But Jesus came. God came himself to usher in the kingdom, the upside down kingdom that knocks over the systems of injustice, that sets right our relationship with one another, with the earth and with God himself. And that because the kingdom has begun to go out into the earth and that because we are invited to partner with Jesus, with filled with his spirit to bring the kingdom, that we live in a time now both where, yes, we experience some of the brokenness of work, but also where we are invited to bring some of that shalom to the places that we, where, we, we, where we work, whether that is in employment, whether it is out of employment, whether it is in the home, whether it's with our neighbours, with our family, with our friends, that we are invited to bring some of the shalom, peace and prosperity that God has promised. And that really the key to knowing how to do that is not to know all of this history, to have all of this theology at our fingertips, to be very clever about seeing the webs of injustice in the world and trying to unpick them, but instead to ask two very simple questions. In the places that we are, in the work that we do, to say, Jesus, where are you? Jesus, where are you? 
and what would you have me do? Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed talking to you. As you can see, the recording um, of this has taken a little while as I've become increasingly dishevelled and more sweaty. So I thank you for bearing with me. Um, I apologise for all editing errors um, and for constantly looking down here when I should actually have been talking to you. Um, I've really enjoyed my time doing this teaching and I look forward to the time when the current situation ends, when I can come and visit you all, where I can be with you in person. Uh, both my friends uh, that I have now who are with you there and also friends yet to be made. Thank you and bye bye.